And let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your good word. We thank you that it shows us Jesus and what it means to trust him as our Saviour. And we thank you that through its teaching, correction, rebuke and training, we can be equipped to live as his people, ready for every good work that you call us to. Give us understanding now of your word and help me to teach your word truthfully and clearly. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, the fact that you're here this evening uh, means that... uh, All of you are at least in some way involved with Christian ministers and Christian congregations, that dealing with them is a feature, whether small or large, in your life. So how should we think about them? What should be our attitude and expectation of Christian ministers? Uh, What should be our relationship and engagement with Christian congregations? Uh, We're going to answer that question tonight from 1 Corinthians 3 as Paul addresses the problems caused by the Corinthians letting the values of their culture shape their expectation of and interaction with Christian ministers and Christian congregations so that, in a sense, they were badly misunderstanding the role and the work of the first Christian ministers and falling short, dangerously short, in their engagement with Christian congregations. So take ministers for the Corinthians, informed by the wisdom of their day, you know, with their I'm for Paul, I'm for Apollos, I'm for Peter, Christian ministers should be philosophical, rhetorical superstars, out there getting a name and following for themselves and competing with their ministerial rivals for that following. And in doing this, enhancing their followers' and supporters' reputation by their style, rhetoric and insight, and all the time gratefully acknowledging the support that propelled them to such prominence. Now, perhaps informed by the wisdom of our day, uh, we prefer to think of ministers in other ways. Maybe we like our ministers to come as you know, successful CEOs running a visibly prosperous outfit, which we feel good about, good to be associated with. Or maybe we like them to be kind of entertainment celebrities, great communicators, riding a wave of popular support, but always conscious of and acknowledging their devoted fan base. Perhaps we think of them as spiritual gurus with talk show-ready answers to life's big questions, We can think of them in lots of ways. How should we think of Christian ministers? And what about our attitude to the Christian congregation we belong to? Again, for the Corinthians, shaped by their culture and its wisdom, it was just another voluntary association in a world of voluntary associations in which they, at least the powerful and the rich amongst them, could compete to enhance their social status and prestige, to demonstrate their superiority, the superiority of their knowledge and gifts. And we ought to think, how does our culture teach us to think about participation in the congregation? Tolerated as a religious hobby? Perhaps even a place for losers. Or something that's okay as long as it helps, so long as it enhances your experience of life, supports your choices, Or maybe it's just something to be 
a little embarrassed about. What should we think of our church, of the congregation? In verses 5 to 17, Paul gives the Corinthians and us three pictures of the church. In verses 5 to 9, he speaks of the church as God's field. Verses 10 to 15, the church as God's building. And verses 16 to 17 is the church as God's temple. And he gives us these pictures to set the Corinthian and our thinking straight about Christian ministry and Christian congregations. And then in verses 18 to 23, he will again call on the Corinthians and on us to abandon worldly ways of thinking that distort and confuse our perception of the Christian life and Christian congregations. Uh, abandon worldly ways in a sense that expose us to great danger and impoverish our Christian lives. Abandon them instead to embrace God's wisdom, Christ crucified, through which we are enriched beyond our imagining. So how should we think about Christian ministers? Verses 5 to 9. What then's Apollos? What's Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his own reward according to his own labour, for we are God's co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. So rather than superstars, Paul says, they're servants. Rather than cultivators of their own following, producers of their own crop, God is the one who gives fruitfulness Rather than looking to the approval and gifts of their supporters as the measure of success, their reward is actually verse 9 from God. And rather than seeing differences in the ministry between, say, Paul and Apollos as opportunities for comparison, criticism and competition, Paul says those differences are from God who assigns to each a task, verse 5, and they are one. One in status and purpose. Now, Paul's picture is taken from the labour-intensive agriculture of the day. God's the landowner. The congregation belongs to God. It's his field. And Christian ministers like Paul and Apollos are agricultural labourers employed by God, fellow workers for God. The whole emphasis in the passage is actually on God. He gives to each their task. He's the source of growth. He directs the work. He rewards his labourers. The church depends on him. So what does that mean for the way we ought to think about Christian ministers and the way ministers, say, should think about their congregations? Well, four points for how the congregation should think about ministers. Firstly, it tells us true ministry in a Christian congregation is from God. And its mark will be faithfulness to God's direction in the gospel and a consciousness of accountability, not to the congregation, but to God who has entrusted them with that work. Secondly, the fruitfulness of God-given ministry depends on God. Now, that's no excuse for lazy or careless work. In fact, it should be a reason for diligent and prayerful work but it's a warning, isn't it, against reliance on techniques, on thinking, in a sense, we can, by our plans, guarantee effectiveness and success. 
You see, these days some people do like to see the minister as a kind of CEO of the church, as an organisation that's like a corporation or business. And thinking like that, they then introduce goals. You know, we're going to have 10% growth per annum over the next five years and become a mega church. And, of course, with those goals come performance reviews for the staff to see how they're distributing to the goals. You know, do you think your sermons have been 10% more persuasive this year? Something effective like that. They never ask, have they been 10% longer? I'm always disappointed by that. No, we don't have those reviews. <laughs> Anyhow... We should, that would be a mark of productivity, wouldn't it? Right, no. We should see that worldly ways of evaluating ministerial effectiveness are just that, worldly. The only kind of growth human plans can guarantee is human-induced growth, not the spirit-given growth by which Christ grows his church that comes through the word and prayer. Thirdly, While we might feel it enhances our decision to be involved in a congregation to support a ministry, while it might might make us feel good to have a minister we can promote as a superstar, a minister to be proud of, is a terrible error. Christian ministers are not self-promoting religious gurus, you know, seeking to enhance and popularise their own ideas and their own agendas. They're not like that. That's actually terribly dangerous. They are servants, labourers for God. And so Christian congregations actually have to avoid the cult of the successful leader and all the opportunities for abuse that go with it. And uh, if you've listened to the, you know, Who Killed Mars Hill podcast... Anybody listen to that? You'd know what I'm actually talking about. Where you give that leader that prominence, godliness seems to go out the door. And fourthly, we ought to recognise, like Paul and Apollos, ministers will be different. And you see that on our staff. And that difference is an aspect of God's provision for which we should be grateful, not an opportunity for comparison, disappointment and partisan loyalty. You do see that sometimes, though, don't you? People have their favourites, Piper, Keller, Schaefer, Lewis, and everyone who's not like them just doesn't measure up. We should be grateful. So, in short, congregations shouldn't think too highly of Christian ministers, and they actually have to avoid the politics of personality and that cult of the leader that attributes growth to them. Ministers are servants. Servants of God, labourers in his field. And yet at the same time, congregations shouldn't have too low a view of Christian ministers because they are God's labourers in God's field, co-workers for God. And so congregations shouldn't think that they should be able to hire and fire at whim as if they are the congregation's employees. Nor should they think that ministers are unnecessary. Their work matters. God's field does need cultivation and watering for growth. And congregations shouldn't talk all others than their favourite down, but receive the service God provides through each with gratitude for God's provision. And it's worth remembering, if you want good ministers... Make sure you are God's field and then take it up with the owner. Pray for a faithful 
and fruitful ministry. And how should ministers think about congregations and their work? Just briefly. But plainly they've got to depend on God. It's God who makes the growth, who gives the growth. And so the work of Christian ministers in a congregation should be marked by prayerfulness and humility. Because if our work is fruitful, that's not a cause for pride, but thankfulness to God who gives the growth. And secondly, we have to remember that in the end, the only reward that matters is the reward that God gives. And so in a sense, we shouldn't be looking for external measures, external rewards. That's why in our congregation, we give ministers a living. You know, we don't change what they get paid according to seniority or, you know, how busy they are. There are no performance bonuses. We give a living, right, a living, because the reward we should all be labouring for is the reward God gives us. And thirdly, of course, ministers have to remember that they're servants of God, not the servants of the congregation and that they take their instruction from the owner who has oversight. They work under his direction for the congregation but not at the direction of the congregation. So the church is God's field and ministers are his servants. But Paul moved on now to talk about the congregation as God's building. And that creates an especial care in how we should all engage with the congregation. It creates a responsibility on us all for the way we think about and act in relation to our brothers and sisters. Verse 10, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it, for no one can lay any other foundation than what has been laid down. That foundation is Christ. We are used to buildings going up quickly. Uh, But in the ancient world, as in the building of medieval cathedrals, uh, there could be many years between the commencement of a building, the laying of the foundation, and its completion, in fact, generations of workers could be involved in finishing the whole building and those who laid the building's foundation accepted that they might not see its completion. So Paul says he's been like the managing architect. He's laid the foundation for the congregation but now other teams of builders will be working on it to bring it to completion for the owner. Uh, Those engaged, he said, in that work really need to be careful about how they go about it because the owner, God, is going to test their workmanship and he can't be fooled. And his test will reveal the nature of their work, its worth, and he will reward accordingly. So Paul makes a number of points in relation to the congregation as God's building. Firstly, it has only one foundation, Jesus Christ and him crucified, the Jesus of the gospel Paul preaches. Now the foundation decides, doesn't it, the shape and the purpose of the building. 
So any building work has to be on the foundation and consistent with it to be part of the building as it's intended to be. To depart from Christ is then to be engaged in another building project than the building project that God has commenced through Paul. So congregations can't be built by those, whether ministers or members, who don't trust and follow the Lord Jesus. And secondly, those who trust the Lord Jesus have to contribute and they can contribute work of varying durability and value. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss. But he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now what distinguishes the contributions of one from the other? Whose work will last? Well, Paul lists, in a sense, two groups of materials, doesn't he? The combustible, the stuff that burns, wood, hay, straw, and the non-combustible, the stuff that doesn't burn, gold, silver, costly stones. And what distinguishes those two groups is actually basically one thing, their costliness. Some build with material that's worth a lot, that costs a lot, the gold, the silver, Others with stuff that they could, you know, pick up on the way with their loose change, wood, hay, straw. The material we build with is a measure of our respect for the owner, the value we place upon the project. And it's no surprise, isn't it, that the cheap stuff won't last, won't remain. For this is a building God has commenced at great cost to himself, the death of his son, and he wants what's built to be worthy of that foundation. And so the way you build, what it costs you to build, actually matters, doesn't it? Verse 13, the fire will test the quality. Now there is a testing, and there will, says Paul, verses 14 to 15, be rewards and loss. Though we're assured, verse 15, that those who suffer loss will be saved by God's grace because we are in Christ. But there's still loss. Now, some are puzzled by this talk of rewards and loss and see it as somehow inconsistent with being saved by grace. Now, undoubtedly, believers are saved by God's grace, not their works, and that's clear here. And it's clear in the discussion of chapter 1, Uh, We're all saved by God's provision of his son, Jesus, who through his death, says St Paul in chapter 1, has become our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. That is, God has given us all we need to be pardoned at the last day and be welcomed as people who've never offended God. He's given us all we need to be freed from the hold of sin and death, all we need to be welcome in God's sight. He's given us all that in Christ and he's called us freely to trust him. But the New Testament does speak of rewards. In fact, our Lord talks of rewards more than any other and there are some references in the handout, Matthew 6, Matthew 25. You can look that up or ask me. So, At one level, I'm not sure why this 
talk of rewards troubles us. You say, why should we think our father is indifferent to our work, is unable, in a sense, to discriminate between half-hearted and careless work and whole-hearted and sacrificial service? Why would that trouble us? Well, perhaps we fear that talk of rewards will mean we serve for less than noble motives or that it will breed pride. But you can't serve Christ in a self-interested way. It starts with dying to yourself. And like those who work hard, like Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 10, they know it's by grace. He can say, I worked harder than them all, yet it wasn't I, but God's grace in me. Surely rewards increase gratitude for God's faithfulness to his people, not pride. But perhaps, you know, we're uncomfortable with this language for other, less noble reasons. Maybe we're uncomfortable with the language of rewards because it makes us afraid we might suffer loss, conscious that our work is not the best we could do and we want to feel comfortable in being half-hearted. Or maybe, like our culture, we want to think we have it all now, all in this life, have it all without having to give it much thought, you know, just turn up, trust Jesus, that's it. We want to think that so we can kind of focus on the other things we want to get on with in life. Or perhaps we suffer from a form of, well, a vicious egalitarianism and resent others receiving more even if they've worked harder, thinking that another's reward somehow diminishes me. Now, let me say, if any of those are true of you, you should repent of half-hearted work, of complacency and of envy. The language of rewards is real and it tells you that what you do matters, especially the way you contribute to the building up of God's people because the congregation matters to God. And at the same time, recognise that that's actually an encouragement to persevering, costly service. You see, the real question with this talk of rewards is not how does this language fit into my theology, but am I building something that will last, that will endure the testing flame? Now, we're not told what it is exactly to build with gold, silver, precious stones. As I said, the only thing that marks the, the, the contributions that endure from the contributions that are consumed is the cost. And that should make us think, because we all know, don't we, that some service does cost more. So think about it. Come to church, what are you going to do? Associate only with those you like, who you feel comfortable with, whose company is rewarding? Or actually go beyond yourself. Go out of your way to include others. Get to know those who are not like yourself and pay the price for that. You find out someone who's sick. What are you going to do? Say, oh, that's so sorry, I'll pray for you. Or are you going to go over and see if they need their shopping done or their house cleaned? You're under pressure, leading a Bible study. What are you going to do? Quickly prepare that Bible study, fit it in around your social life and your other commitments? 
Or will you make it a priority to have time and spend hours making sure that you've actually read and understood the passage and prayed for those in your group? Or some, you know, just content to turn up late to growth group and leave early because, well, really they're only there because they've got nothing better to do and they don't want to actually have to make changes to their pattern. Others change their social pattern to make sure that they're actually here encouraging the brethren. They're at growth group on time. The kind of service we give has different costs, doesn't it? Now, of course, we can't judge what someone else's involvement costs them. You know, to someone earning $1,000 a week, giving $100 doesn't cost as much as somebody on $200 giving 10 You know, someone who has many demands may pay more to give an hour to preparation than someone who has lots of times and who can prepare lots of time and can prepare for hours. We don't know that for others, but we can know what price we ourselves are prepared to pay to build up God's people. And remember, it's not if, but when the Lord tests your work. Not if, but when. When that day comes, will it endure? Or will it be burnt up as cheap and shoddy, careless and thoughtless? That day's going to come for us all. And yet also see here the encouragement. See, that time you spend, that won't lose its reward whether it's for Sunday school or visiting your sick friend, that kindness, that won't lose its reward. And isn't it encouraging to know that you can use the time and the resources you have now to do things of eternal significance that will adorn God's work in Christ. Having encouraged costly and careful contribution to the building up of the congregation by us all, Paul now goes on to focus the picture to remind the Corinthians that the congregation is God's temple and to warn them and us against destructive and divisive actions. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. Do you not know? So this is fundamental. And every one of us should know this. You, you plural, the congregation, you are the temple of God and God's spirit dwells in or amongst you. Not talking of individuals as he will in chapter 6. He's talking of the congregation, the meeting and the community that grows from it. It's a breathtaking thing to say. You see, the temple in the Old Testament was the place of God's presence amongst his people and it was marked out as especially his own, especially holy. God's Old Testament people knew that, that the temple was God's, separated to him. They knew it because there were all sorts of regulations that governed people's behaviour in the temple so that it was treated as special as belonging to God and they knew that there were serious consequences for those who broke those regulations, who treated it as if it was just any old building. You know, if you went into the sanctuary and you weren't a priest or you were a priest 
and you went into the sanctuary and hadn't prepared properly, it would be death. Oh, in Ezekiel we read that a large cause of the judgment God brought upon Judah was their defiling the temple by their idolatry within it to show disrespect or contempt for the temple was to show contempt for God. And God has said he will not be mocked. And that's the point Paul is making. It's very serious and very dangerous to act destructively towards the congregation, God's holy people. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and that is what you are. Now, there are many ways of being destructive. In the Corinthian case here in chapter 3, as we've seen, it's through rivalry, competition, self-promotion that threatens the unity of the congregation, threatening to split it. You know, those things weren't merely a failure of personal relationship. They were actually an assault on God's temple, which would bring God's judgment, says Paul. But we can assault God's temple, the congregation, in other ways, by immorality, which defiles the holiness of God's people, by gossip that poisons relationships amongst God's people, by false teaching, by pugnaciously asserting and defending our opinions as if they were certain truth, by judgmental lovelessness, by unforgiveness. In all, we're actually treating the congregation as if it were just another human group. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Or worse, treating it as one we can use and possess as if it belongs to us and should serve our self-glorification, forgetting that it belongs to God and God's spirit dwells amongst us. God will not take those destructive actions with indifference. Remember Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, Acts chapter 5, if you haven't read it, look it up introducing hypocrisy into God's people at the beginning of the foundation of the church and they drop dead. God is not mocked. He's established the standard and the reality. We have to seek to build up God's people, not destroy them. So Paul's given us three pictures to set our thinking about Christianity and the ministry and the Christian congregation straight and so guide us in our interactions with the congregation. Finally, in verses 18 to 23, Paul calls the Corinthians and us to abandon the worldly thinking that lay behind their errors. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool so that he can become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God since it is written. He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the reasonings of the wise are futile. So let no one boast in human leaders, for everything is yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, everything is yours and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. You see, behind the Corinthian problems, their distorted view of the role of Christian ministers, their unacceptable contribution to the building up of God's people, their foolhardy divisiveness that put them in grave danger, was their love of their culture's wisdom, the worldview of their culture, with its premium on self-promotion 
its preoccupation with status, its focus on appearance and its endorsement of competition. You know, behind so many of our problems with church, our failure to build up what will last also lies values of the worldview of our culture. And just superficially, what does our culture say life is about? Well, it says it's all about me and realising my desires and my wishes, having my preferences supported. It's all about me and this life is all that's worth living for. My choices, says my culture, are preeminent. My pleasure, the measure of what is worthwhile. And it has to happen now. Where this is the intellectual air we breathe, what happens? Well, we'll measure our participation in the congregation by how it makes me feel, whether it enhances my experience, what I get out of it. Oh, and the work of ministers will be judged on that same basis. Not whether they've told me the truth, but how they've made me feel and whether they've supported me in and endorsed my choices. And our contribution to the congregation will also be determined on that basis. So we'll always be drawing back from costly contribution that makes us feel uncomfortable. Drawing back from what we see as not contributing positively to my sense of well-being, my feeling good about myself. Relating through our culture's values and wisdom with God's people, God's ministry, God's purpose in Christ is actually disastrous. For we'll think and act in relation to God's building and temple as if it is all about me, when it's actually God's. To us, as to the Corinthians, Paul says, let no one deceive himself. Stop kidding yourselves. Your wisdom, those standards by which you measure and determine your involvement with the congregation, they put you in real grave danger of missing out. They put you in danger of judgment and of missing out on the real wealth and security Christ gives. And what's the way forward? Well, says Paul, if you think you're wise in this age, become a fool so that you can become wise. The way forward is to admit how little you know so you can learn something more. Paul is calling us, he's going back to chapter 1 when he says become a fool. He's saying embrace the foolishness of the cross so you can learn God's wisdom. Make the cross the basis of your relating to God so that you're always conscious of his grace and grateful to him and make it the basis of your relating to each other so that you cheerfully die to yourself to do your Lord's will, to love his people, knowing that he will graciously raise you up at the last day. Abandon that preoccupation with self for the wisdom of the cross. This, he says, is the way forward. For the judgment of God, and again he's going back to chapter 1, has already fallen on the wise of this world. The cross has already shown 
that their wisdom is foolishness because they could never recognise or embrace Jesus. And it's only then, only as you embrace the cross as a way of relating to God and as your way of life that you'll be free to use to the full all the resources God has provided. All things, he says, are yours. All things. In Christ, all his servants are there to serve us. You know, you can be blessed, he says to the Corinthians, by the ministry of Paul, Apollos, Cephas, that's Peter. You don't need to restrict yourself to one. And we can be blessed by all God's people. Diva, Lewis, Schaefer, Carson, Ride, Bridges, the list goes on. In fact, says St Paul, all of life, all aspects of life, including those which overwhelm us, are now, he says, for our service. Because in Christ, God will work them all for our good as we know ourselves to belong to the crucified Christ. How impoverishing it is for Christians to adopt the standards from the world that drive us away from glorying in the crucified Christ and make his death the measure and the guide of all our service of God. His death has transformed all things for us. They are ours in him. Trusting the crucified Saviour, we are rich and secure, not just in the present, but in the future. Well, Paul says to the Corinthians, change. Change your thinking. Change your thinking about Christian ministry. Change your thinking about Christian congregations. Let go of the wisdom of the world with its focus on yourself and your experience and your self-expression and embrace the wisdom of Christ that dies to self, that takes up cross and follows our Lord Jesus, knowing he has died for us and made us right with God and God has raised him from the dead and God will raise all who are his. And embracing the wisdom of the cross. No, Christian ministers are God's servants to do his will in his field, to work according to his word and standards. And know that the congregation, the congregation that you are involved in, is God's project. It's his field. It's his building to be built according to Christ. And yes, it's his temple, precious to him. The sign of his place amongst his people in the world. Build. Be people who build what lasts by dying to yourself to love his people and think everything, everything is worthwhile in building upon the foundation laid, adorning our Lord Jesus who has died for us and risen again and will raise us with him at the last day. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we pray we wouldn't be conformed to this world, but we would be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that we would think about Christian ministry and we would think about the life of your people in ways that conform to your truth, in ways that conform to your revelation of yourself in the death and rising of your son. Please, we pray, make us people 
who build with what costs, what's precious and valuable, so that our work will last and be revealed as lasting at the last day. Help us to know that those we interact with matter to you, are holy, so that we always treat them with the reverence that you would expect of us, the reverence we should show you in your presence in the world. And our gracious Father, we pray, give us such a grasp of what you have done for us in Christ that we know we are rich people and that all things are ours and that in Christ we are yours. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.